Welcome to the Golden Hind Podcast, where we'll be chatting about everything from Francis Drake's circumnavigation of the world to the Spanish Armada, Elizabethan seafaring, pirates, to the adventures of our full-scale reconstruction in the heart of London. This episode of the Golden Hind Podcast is presented by... Hello, my name is Pete, and I'm one of the education officers at the Golden Hind, and welcome to another episode of the Golden Hind Podcast. Now, as many of our listeners may already know, the Golden Hind, which is currently berthed on the south bank of the River Thames, is not the original ship, but a full-scale reconstruction. However, our reconstruction has also circumnavigated the world. In fact, it's clocked up over 100,000 miles at sea. And during its voyages, the reconstruction was sailed by many people from all across the globe. And we're very lucky to be joined by two members of that motley crew today, Jim and Lisa Nelson, who are going to share some of their experiences of sailing on a reconstructed Elizabethan galleon. So hello, Jim and Lisa. Hello, Peter. Good morning, Peter. Thank you so much for agreeing to join us today. And I'm I'm so excited to find out what it was actually like for you to sail on the ship. I've been working at the Golden Hind for a couple of years now, and mercifully, I think in some ways, it's been very still during that time. <laughs> <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> and in a dry dock. So it's going to be great to get an insight into what life was like with on the Hind at sea. Not so still, I imagine. No, indeed. Uh, <laughs> far from it. <laughs> so... To kick us off, why don't you introduce yourselves, tell us a little bit about uh, your work and your relationship to the Golden Hind. Uh, Well, I guess I'll start. I'm Lisa Nelson, and I first saw the Golden Hind when she was sailing into Oakland, California in 1987, where I lived on my sailboat at Jack London Square. And when she hove into view, I was absolutely smitten. And I knew that I had to sail on her. I had only sailed on yachts up until that point. I had a background in sailing. And as I said, I lived aboard my boat. I was 21 years old. And as she sailed closer and closer to me, I hatched a plan to how I was going to get aboard. So finally, with great fanfare, she tied up at the dock near to me. And I came uh, over to the ship in my rowboat. And I thought the best way to ingratiate myself with the crew was to offer to take them to do their laundry at the local laundromat. So that's what I did. And that's how I first met the crew of the Golden Hind. (laughs) Uh, My name is Jim Nelson. Uh, I am currently a an author of maritime fiction and nonfiction. I've written about 25 books at this point. Um, the Golden Hind was a, a, a seminal part of uh, the career that I, I've since developed. Uh, and I actually did spend a few years working in traditional sail after the Golden Hind. So that sort of laid the groundwork for, uh, for the career that I have now. Oh, fantastic. Lisa, that is an amazing story about uh, going to do the cruise laundry. I bet that smelled fantastic. <laughs> yeah, I, as a sailor, I knew that um, when you when you came ashore, having sailed in, uh, getting around was not very easy back in the day. We didn't have Uber and so forth. I suppose we had cabs, but, um, but uh, going to do your laundry with another sailor, um, you know, driving them around, I, I thought would be a really good idea. So it worked. <laughs> <laughs> How did you both come to sail on the reconstruction? Well, for me, uh, I had actually gone to uh, film school at UCLA. I was living in Los Angeles and making a career in the television industry and getting seriously burnt out on that. Um, I'd been sailing for a number of years. I'd always been very passionate about ships and sailing, and uh, I was living on a boat at the time, 
and thinking about leaving Los Angeles, maybe cruising my boat down to Mexico when the Hind sailed in. And uh, I read about it in the local paper and thought, wow, this is what I've always wanted to do, to sail on a traditional sailing vessel like that. Um, so I took a long lunch break and went down to watch a ship sail in. And watching her go by under full sail, cannons firing, crew working aloft, I just realized this is what I absolutely had to do. Well, and for me, as I said, I, I saw her um, sail into Oakland, and uh, within three months, I had joined the crew. So once I had initially met the crew and um, met the ship, I hatched a plan to leave my boat tied up there at the dock in Jack London Square and leave my job and by December of that year, I was a full-time crew member. We were going to be sailing down the coast of California and eventually through Panama. So I had signed on thinking about a year, and that's about how long I was on the ship in the end. Amazing. So they were they were keen to take new crew members on board then, it seems. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. In fact, we always thought there would be a, a long line of people waiting to get aboard, but that wasn't always the case. People just couldn't leave their, their lives uh, to run away at sea, as we thought. It's really for the young you know, and, and uh, uh, people who are unencumbered when they're young, um, that that tends to be an easier time for them to go aboard a ship like that. Yeah, I had the, the same feeling. You know, when I uh, first heard about the ship coming in, I thought, well, there's no way I'm going to get a job on board here. There must be a waiting list a, a year long. Uh, and it was only because the local paper sort of mentioned that they were looking for crew that it occurred to me this was a possibility. I mean, you made $75 a week and you got to sleep on the deck of this cool ship. <laughs> Who would not sign up for that? <laughs> uh, apparently a lot of people did not. So yeah, they were, they were looking for crew when, when we were <laughs> ready to join. That's the truth. Yeah, $75 a week. It's a, just a touch more than the, uh, the Elizabethan crew would have made. Yes, <laughs> yeah, right. Indeed. The food is better though. The food is better. <laughs> just about. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so you, you mentioned you both have a sailing background before you joined the crew. You weren't you weren't total newbies. Correct. Yeah, I had uh, I had, as I said, always been passionate about sailing ships ever since I was a kid. And um, when I lived in Los Angeles, I started sailing more seriously, uh, moving from smaller boats up to larger boats, and living aboard a sailboat when I joined the Hind. And it was interesting too because. Having been passionate about this all my life, I'd been reading about it all my life. And I read the Hornblower books and all of those and histories. And, and so I knew a lot of this terminology, but I didn't know how to pronounce it because I'd only read it. Uh, so I come on board and I'm talking about the rat lines and the bow lines. And, and the forecastle. And the, the forecastle. <laughs> and uh, so I quickly got my pronunciation straightened out. But By of, me, by, by the yeah, way. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing oh. how much the, the terminology sticks. I sometimes, if I'm upstairs in my house, I say, oh, I'm, I'm just going down below. Yeah, yeah, there Good you man. go. Okay. It's kind of interesting because I actually grew up in the desert. So I was born and raised in Phoenix, Arizona. Um, there are a lot of lakes there, but no ocean. Sadly, we we lost our only waterfront there in the um, in the Mexican-American War. <laughs> but uh, but my father, he taught my brother about Starpath, which was the navigation system for the Polynesians. And my brother was smitten with that. And, and I learned that from him. And then he went into the Navy and learned to sail uh, overseas. And when he came back, he bought a sailboat. So we sailed on the lakes in Arizona. 
and he couldn't stand that any longer, had to get, get to the ocean. So he went to San Francisco and lived aboard his boat. And of course, I had to follow my big brother out. So I ended up out there in San Francisco and Oakland, which is in the East Bay, and uh, bought a sailboat and really cut my teeth on sailing in San Francisco Bay. Um, which is a great place to learn to sail because there's a, a big wind, small craft advisory every afternoon. And so um, so that's how I learned how to sail. Uh, and my my love of sailors goes all the way back to age three when I um, always watched Sinbad the Sailor. And I love sailors from that point on and mm-hmm. ended up marrying Jim a sailor. So <laughs> even though I grew up in the desert, um, I think sailing somehow got in there. Would you say you had a call to the sea? I, I like to think so, Pete. <laughs> so, did you have specific roles when you were working aboard the ship? Uh, we did. We 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 both started off as deckhands, and um, uh, as deckhands, part of our duty involved uh, leading educational programming. That was a major component of what the ship was doing at the time. Uh, I ended up getting promoted to bosun. Uh, who is the bosun being the person who's in charge of the maintenance, supervising the crew work, um, maintaining the rigging and that sort of thing. Uh, so that was my job. Well, I was a deckhand too. And, uh, you know, when we were underway going, sailing from port to port, we were sailors. So we were deckhands, we worked aloft, we handled the lines. I mean, we we sailed the ship. But when we were ashore, we gave tours to the public and also to school children. So we had to switch out hats then, and then be- we became educators or tour guides. Um, the uh, My call to be a teacher, which I am now a school teacher, uh, began there because of the great feedback that I heard from teachers who brought their school children in. And this was in California. So I, I often heard, oh, please go to school and get your teaching degree and come back. We need you in California. So I never did teach in California, but that was the beginning of my my love of teaching too, was when we were giving tours to school children. And when we were at sea, Lisa was one of the watch leaders being uh probably the most experienced sailor on board after me. Actually, make a, <laughs> you make a good point. Uh, just Jim and myself had any sailing experience prior um, wow. to, to the Golden Hind. I forgot wow. about that. Yeah, that was... Um, uh, that well, I was going to talk about this later, but I, I can say um, one of the things that really, drove, uh, really brought Lisa and I together was the fact that uh, of everyone on the crew, we were really the only two that had previous sailing experience. Most of the other guys on the crew, the guys and gals, men and women, uh, that sailed on the ship were doing it, you know, for the fun of it because it was a, an incredibly novel experience, something, you know, that we would not get a chance to do very often. But they didn't really have a previous interest in sailing and didn't really have an interest in continuing on professionally as sailors. Lisa and I were the only two who came to it as sailors with an intention of continuing on making a profession out of sailing so that we had that connection early on and that that really was sort of the foundation of well ultimately 27 years of marriage i guess (laughs) (laughs) and did that make things difficult uh working with a sort of a crew of landlubbers and having to lead the charge i would say early on it was difficult because we didn't get a lot of training early on. We ended up uh, about four or five months into it. uh, We got hammered off the coast of Point Conception in in California. 
And it showed that we didn't have a lot of crew training at the time. And things changed after that because we we were um, in a bad way there and limped into port at Moss Landing. Uh, after that, crew training was part of daily life and uh, we were whipped into shape and we became a crack team, I would say. We were definitely a crack team, very mm-hmm. experienced, very able, uh, which could be a real pain in the neck at times, I have to say. When we got into Texas, um, uh, after transiting the Panama Canal, a lot of the crew left and we hired a lot of new people who didn't know anything about sailing. And it was great because they wouldn't talk back. You know, if I told them, grab that line and pull it, they would grab the line and pull it, as opposed to the old crew who would say, well, I don't know if it's time to pull this line yet. (laughs) They had become so, true sailors. Yeah, exactly. True sailors, uh, they love to grumble. About exactly. <laughs> so the, there are advantages to having crew who don't know anything. Uh, <laughs> but certainly, no, it was it was better by the time we got into Panama. We were we were very very adept at uh, at sailing the ship. That's right. And what would you say was the purpose of the voyages? Why were you sailing around uh, around the Americas in the Golden Hind? Well, at the time uh, when Hind was touring, um, we really were a floating museum. So we would come into port, uh, tie up, and um, if it was during the the school year, uh, they would have arranged for school tours to come down. And we would have nonstop kids coming through there, class after class, eight hours a day. Uh, It was pretty draining. You know, all of the crew went after the other uh, leading the, the kids through. Uh, of course, the worst thing was if you got stuck behind Lisa, because Lisa had so much to say about the ship that you would sort of have to fill time waiting yeah. for her to get done. Pacing is still my yeah. challenge in the classroom, for sure. <laughs> uh, so that was that was the, uh, the purpose of the ship. Uh, the voyaging really was to get from one port to the other. But I will say that Roddy understood that the reason that we were on the ship is because we loved the sailing. And while he could have easily just motored from port to port, uh, he was always good about leaving enough time for us to actually sail the ship. Uh, And that was well appreciated. And it must have added so much color into what you were telling the school groups, knowing that you'd actually sailed it and experienced something, something of what it might have been like to sail on an Elizabethan ship. That's right. It gave us so many stories to relate to the kids about being at sea. So not only were we discussing the history of sailing and the history of of England and of Sir Francis Drake, but we were relating real sailor stories from our own experience. Sure, of course, that that's always compelling. It's one thing, you know, to tell uh, the kids that the sailors had to go up aloft and, and furl the sails, you know, way up there while the ship's rolling around. But to have actually done it and be able to say that you had actually done it, that, that makes a big difference. And I, I think the uh, uh, the kids appreciated that, they appreciated the authenticity that went with that. Yes. That, right. I, I'm sure they did. Um, and you met each other on board the ship, am I, am I right in saying? Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that story? Well, I joined in the summer of 87, and by June of 88, we... Um, we're in um, Los Angeles in Marina del Rey, and I guess Jim can tell the rest of that story yeah. as we were sailing in. Yeah, this is one of my this is one of my favorite stories. So I had uh, I think I mentioned earlier that when I heard that the hind was coming in, uh, I took a long lunch break to go down and watch her sail in, 
And it's very exciting. I was standing, you know, on the, the dock side watching the ship uh, come down the channel. And uh, I looked down on the dock and there were a couple of crew members who had come in earlier on the other ship that we had uh, that was sort of the mothership uh, for the project. Uh, they'd come in earlier and they were there to catch the, the dock lines. And one of them was this woman dressed in 16th century sailor garb with her hair tied back and a pistol thrust in her belt. And it's like, whoa, that was a surprise. <laughs> and that turned out to be Lisa. That was the uh, the first uh, time I laid eyes on her. And then, as I said, you know, we uh, uh, we were both sailors since so we really connected uh, over that. Uh, though for the first year when we were on the ship, we were really just shipmates. And it was actually after we left behind that uh, we sort of uh, reconnected and became more than shipmates. Mm -hmm. And now you're married. And we now we're married. And now we're married. <laughs> it's, a, it's a true love story. Um, <laughs> what did the average day look like on the Golden Hind? Boy, well, it of course, it depended on whether or not we were at sea or if we were at dockside. Exactly, yeah. uh, if we were at dockside and open to the public, uh, Jim mentioned before that we did school tours. Well, each of us would take uh, a school tour. It was an hour long tour uh, and we each had eight of those a day. So initially we would have uh, a smoko, we used to call it. Um, I learned all kinds of great British terms. Uh, so you had a tea break and a, and a chance to have a cigarette, which was back in the day when most of us smoked. I don't think I did, but many of us still did. Um, but during these, these touring days, when the school kids were there Monday through Friday, it was just back-to-back -back touring. And so that was essentially our day, was just giving these tours um, all day long until we collapsed. Um, and then on the weekends, we would have a lot of the public come by and we would give them tours, but most of the time they could just um, come through at, at leisure and then we would be posted um, on the ship to answer questions and that kind of thing. There was also uh, maintenance that we had to do throughout. Uh, so we would rotate people around doing tours and doing the maintenance. Uh, we had a mothership, Jim told you, um, she was a North Sea research vessel that had been turned into what we called the mothership. Her name was Sea Surveyor. And uh, she was uh, she was a, a power ship. She was not a sailing ship. And on board, we had our offices. Uh, the heads and showers were aboard. Uh, and there were also uh, cabins with a lot more amenities on board. And those had to be cleaned. So we would rotate through uh, tours and cleaning and that kind of thing. Then when we were, we're at sea, sea go ahead. So, yeah, when, when, we, were at, sea. when we were at sea, um, we kept a pretty standard watch schedule, of course, uh, uh, when you're underway for more than 24 hours, you know, the ship is operational all times. Uh, so we had the crew divided into three watches, which is pretty standard uh, on uh, sailing ships nowadays. Um, the uh, uh, the watches, we, we use the traditional watch system. So it was noon to four, four to eight, eight to 12. And one third of the crew would be on watch uh, a, B, or C watch, and then uh, the others would be doing uh, maintenance or sleeping or eating or something along those lines. Um, so it was, uh, you know, you sort of get into a uh, a rhythm uh, on board a ship like that, and it's, uh, it's a very pleasant thing. So when we were at sea, we stood a standard watch system. Uh, we had three watches. The crew was divided into uh, A watch, B watch, and C watch. 
And um, is that what we called it, or we call it form animism? Boy, I don't remember. I don't remember either. I think it was <laughs> A, B, and C. Uh, so we would stand the the standard uh, four hour watches. So you'd have four hours on, eight hours off, uh, and the watches went from noon to four, four to eight, eight to midnight, and then around the clock like that. If you weren't when you were on watch, you were either steering. Uh, doing forward lookout or bow watch, doing ship checks, which meant going around the ship to make sure that we weren't sinking or on fire, uh, <laughs> or just standing by for any work that needed doing. When you were off watch, you would spend four hours doing ship's maintenance, which was you know ongoing, uh, and four hours eating, resting, whatever. And of course, there are plenty of situations where it's all hands on deck. If you've got to do a major sail change, uh, if you've got some kind of emergency situation, then it's all hands until the captain stands you down. So the days at sea were were pretty typical, uh, not so much different from what uh, Drake and his men would have been doing. No, I mean, it sounds, sounds pretty relentless. Yes, but once you're at sea for a week or so, you get your sea legs, you get into a routine and uh, and the rhythm is quite pleasant, as Jim yeah, was saying. Yeah, it really is. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I, I mean, it is nonstop because the ship is, you know, constantly needs to be steered, constantly needs to be maintained. Conditions change very rapidly. So you're always ready to, you know, to leap to when needed. That's right. And, you know, I suppose at the end of the watch, you've got these sort of five-star hotel living <laughs> Back to it was pretty cush, I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> what were the living conditions like? Well, uh, on the ship, uh, they were definitely uh, primitive. In Drake's day, they actually didn't use hammocks. It seems like a pretty standard thing now, uh, but they actually hadn't come up with the idea, so most of the crew just slept on the deck. And that was actually the case with us as well. We did have hammocks, and some people used them, but they can be a bit of a pain. Mm -hmm. uh, so most crew just had um, you know, sleeping bags on the deck, uh, down on the gun deck primarily. Mm -hmm. We slept on the gun deck, yeah. I used to sleep up in the, the forecastle. I got the nickname Folksle Jim. From That's that. right. The bosun got uh, the Cush location. Yeah. The uh, the captain slept in, uh, in Drake's cabin, which is, of course, the very uh, stern of the ship under the poop deck. Uh, which is the most luxurious um, part of the ship. And anyone who's been on the high knows I ain't saying much because <laughs> it's pretty cramped quarters. Uh, it's pretty funny, too, because the uh, the captain, uh, Mark Boylan, at the time, it was his first command. And now I believe he's commanding these luxurious sailing cruising ships in the South, uh, in the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. So I just, with computerized sails. Computerized sails. So yeah. I just imagine his quarters were a little nice when they were on the hind. So. That's Not a true character, though. <laughs> and the, the Pete, the uh, the head would break constantly and didn't flush very well. So we were constantly having to pull up these five gallon pails of seawater and on a heaving deck haul that across the deck. And then down into uh, the where the engine room was, where the little head was. I'm sure you know where it is, um, and flush fl flush the head with these buckets. Yeah. So it was it, it was dangerous, depending on the weather, to yeah. to do that. And with the ship rolling the way it was, we had to, there were a lot of considerations uh, that had to 
uh, we had to think about. Uh, one of them, of course, is eating. And I remember when we first got underway. Now we, you know, we had sailed coastwise, but we'd never really experienced the the big sort of rollers that you get out at sea. Mm-hmm. And you know, when you were eating dinner, you would get a plate of food, you get a salad, you get a drink, and you sit down. And we quickly realized that doesn't work when you're out on the deep water because mm-hmm. the ship is rolling so hard. So it was, you know, everything goes in one bowl and and one hand is holding that bowl as you're trying to eat. And it's funny to look at the pictures uh, of the crew eating from back in the day because you can see everybody's got a finger like, you know, sort of stuck in the bowl of food to keep it from flying off of the table That's while right. we're eating. <laughs> and did people get seasick? Ah, least did people get seasick? Some people got deathly seasick. Yeah. I was one of those who uh, uh, got violently ill at sea. And um, there were a couple more uh, on board um, on our our voyage to Panama. A few of us that would be seasick. But I I was violently ill every time we would get underway. And, uh, And I continued to be seasick on my subsequent voyages and on the ships I worked on after the Golden Hind. It wasn't until I was in the South Pacific... Uh, for a long period of time where we would come ashore for very, um, very little time and then get underway right away uh, that I finally had my sea legs enough that I would not get sick um, uh, uh, during the first and second day of a voyage. Uh, yeah, I I did not get seasick. And uh, I know enough to not say something as dumb as I don't get seasick. Uh, what I will say is I have not yet been seasick. Uh, and hopefully that will continue to be the case. Yeah. And were there any mod cons to make your life a little bit more comfortable? Ah, uh, um, not really. <laughs> not really no, no, there was a, as far as navigation goes, we had one of the, uh, the first GPS systems uh, and it was wildly inaccurate because there weren't that many satellites up in the sky at the time. So the captain would, you know, he would go and check the GPS and come out and report. Uh, yes, the GPS says we're doing 26 knots in reverse. <laughs> so it was probably not the case. But as far as um, like cooking facilities, uh, we had a portable propane stove that we would uh, uh, bring into the um, uh, armory the armory thank you <laughs> and uh, we'd lash that up and that became the galley um and you know again when you're trying to cook with the ship rolling the way it did it was just uh incredibly difficult i remember once uh our cook lee hoffman pulled this pie out of the oven and just as he did the ship took a wild roll and he flew right across the armory and slammed up against the side of the ship on the other with the pie hitting the side of the ship over his head and dripping down on him as he slid down onto the deck. (laughs) So that was, yeah, those were our modern conveniences. (laughs) (laughs) We did install a dishwasher on the mothership. And prior to that, we all took turns working in the galley um, with our beloved cook, Crystal. And, uh, but unfortunately, hand washing the dishes allowed for uh, the common cold to be just rotated through the crew. And just we 
one of us always had a cold, but finally we had dishwashers installed and that put an end to uh, us getting ill mm -hmm. constantly. Uh, and that was a really good thing, uh, having the dishwasher. We also had a washer and a dryer, but again, this was on the mothership. There were really no uh, creature comforts right. on the Golden Hind. And in fact, we, we showered, quote, showered uh, with seawater. So our, our voyage uh, from San Diego to Texas was um, more than a month, to be sure. And we bathed in salt water the entire mm -hmm. time. Nothing ever dries. It's always clammy. Everything's always kind of clammy. Your clothes, your hair, your skin. And of course, the, the hind did have an engine, uh, which we used uh, coming in and out of the port. And if there was no wind, it, it, uh, on occasion, there was, there was a, a spot where you could sort of peek through the door into what was called the tiller flat. And you could actually see the engine down below. And I remember tourists would come on board and they would sort of peek in there and they'd see the engine and they'd say, you know, oh, you know, what would Francis Drake say if he saw that engine? And I would reply, he'd say, what are you doing with those stupid sails? <laughs> this is the most incredible thing I've ever seen. You know, I explain, Francis Drake did not sail because he liked sailing. He sailed because that was how you got around at the time. <laughs> I think you'd probably be jumping for joy. Absolutely, yeah. yes, you would. <laughs> so, what was the hardest part of sailing the Golden Hind? Would you say what was the most difficult element? Well, we covered a couple of those: the the primitive conditions, to be sure, and um, uh, you know, bad weather at sea. The ship rolled like a drunken sailor. You know, I know that you know, Pete, that there were these kind of sponsons on the side of the ship that made her waterline wider so that she wouldn't roll so violently, but she still rolled terribly. And um, that was a very uncomfortable motion that one just had to endure for sometimes days at a time. Yeah, that was uh, certainly the, the motion of the ship was bad. And now having experience with a number of other sailing ships, I can tell you that it really was bad. Yeah. <laughs> I've never seen a ship that bad. That said, you know, she was a very sturdy ship. She's very well built and very seaworthy. Uh, when we were sailing down the coast of Mexico, we got into the Gulf of Tehuantepec, which is notorious for high winds and seas. And we just got beat up for five or six days, very serious conditions. And the ship handled it perfectly well. I mean, she certainly rolled and the motion could be very uncomfortable. But I remember the, you know, the, um, uh, the wind was screaming and the, the waves were high. And, and I kept saying to the captains, like, Captain, look, this, these are force 10 conditions we're in, right? And he's like, no, no, no. This sort of force eight or force nine. It's like, come on. The next day, it's like, look, look, look at the wind speed. This is force 10 conditions. And he's like, no, no, it's force eight. Then we got into Texas. He gave a talk at one of the yacht clubs, and he stood up and said, when we were in the Gulf of Tehuantepec, we were in force 10 conditions for five days straight. It's like, wait a minute. <laughs> you said, but I think uh, I, I think we were in force 10 conditions. I think he just didn't want to say it because he was afraid that the crew was going to get too nervous. I, I was disappointed, but at least he finally fessed up. And the other thing about the, the hind is that she was very slow. You know, it was a very typical Elizabethan vessel. And Elizabethan vessels were not fast ships between the, the shape of the hull and the sail plan and all of that. So, you know, if we could get three or four knots out of her, we were doing really well. I remember when we were coming into Panama, um, you know, we're, we're sort of sailing along and this oil tanker comes in and passes down our starboard side. And, of course, whenever a ship at sea sees us, they had to 
you know, radio over because we look so cool. <laughs> and so the captain of the, uh, the, the oil tanker radios over and says, you know, uh, sailing vessel, who are you? And, uh, and our captain replies, uh, we're, the, we're the Golden Hind, 31 days out of San Diego. And you can just hear the captain of the oil tanker laughing. He says, I'm seven days out of Alaska. (laughs) (laughs) So that was one thing you had to put up with, is the fact that you weren't going anywhere very fast in that ship. That's the truth. Speaking of of the role of the ship, Golden Hind tour guide legend would have it that before those additions were put onto the hull, the yard arms were almost dipping in the water. (laughs) Oh, wow. We have no firsthand knowledge of that, but it would not surprise me at all. That's, and I, that's totally believable. Yeah, to and I, yeah. I, and I've often wondered because, uh, as Lisa mentioned, do they have those sponsors on the side, which I understand are gone now, um, but they've been put on to uh, to increase the stability of the ship, and she still rolled like crazy. So I yeah. used to think, what in the world was the motion of this ship like before the sponsors? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that that wouldn't surprise me. That, would be a very uncomfortable feeling. No kidding. <laughs> and, and for those of you listening that aren't boat nerds, the yard arm is the piece of wood that goes across the mast that holds the sail. So if that's dipping into the water, that ship is really rolling around. Isn't that right? Uh, yes, that's absolutely right. Now, if I'm going to be really pedantic, I will point out that actually the yard arm is just the very end of that. The entire piece is called a yard. And the yard arm is just the last sort of couple feet of that. So you are correct that if the ship was rolling that bad, the yard arms would be dipping in the water. But the whole thing is not a yard arm. It's a yard. It's a yard. And that's uh, that's the picky <laughs> nonsense that uh, well, makes people not want to ask me questions. No, but that's what makes you an excellent historian. <laughs> yeah, this is why we love doing these podcasts. We all learn, learn so much. Um is there a memory that you're particularly fond of? Oh, boy. There's, there are quite a few of them. I'll just give you a couple quickies. When we transited the canal, uh, we had a crew member, Daniel, who played the bagpipes, and he used to make a killing uh, when we were tied up in any town. He'd, yeah, put, yeah. he'd put his hat out and play the bagpipes and, and make way more money than we ever made as, as shipmates. Uh, but anyway, he uh, he climbed to the very top of the mainmast, way at the very top, and uh, played his bagpipes as we transited yeah. the canal. <laughs> and all yeah. the workers on either side, they would stop and just momentarily and, and just watch us go by and listen to the bagpipes. And it was thrilling. Yeah, on the cruise, ship, the cruise ships, all the passengers were lining the rails. Oh, lining the, the rails to, to see that. So that was a very dramatic um memory and and he just did a wonderful job we were happy about that uh and then i i personally have been in two collisions on the golden hind uh the first one um so maybe not one of my favorite memories but certainly a dramatic one as we were leaving san francisco this was before jim was aboard uh we were actually sideswiped by a tanker heading outbound we were heading outbound and they were heading outbound unfortunately we were in the shipping channel it was in heavy fog naturally and we got sideswiped and we got rolled right over i got knocked out of my bunk i was asleep and uh, we sustained some real damage um, so much so that we had to really limp into port and um, and get that repaired uh, we understood at the time that a week later that same um, skipper hit a bridge up in washington state so 
Um, we hope that he's no longer <laughs> navigating <laughs> any ship. <laughs> and then, um, and, and then the, the second collision, this was probably the most uh, dramatic um, experience on our uh, transit from San Diego through to Texas through the canal. Um, when we were in the, the Gulf of Mexico, um, four or five days out of uh, Panama, perhaps, uh, we were underway at night. Uh, we were motoring. There was absolutely no wind. It was a super dark night, no moon, uh, kind of a mist. And I was on the foredeck. I had foredeck watch. My watch was um, on and I was up on the foredeck. And out of the gloom, I just saw just a lightening of the gloom. And as we moved forward, it resolved into a boat. And I could see that boat was there no lights, nothing. And so just in a split second, I yelled back to the helmsman, hard as starboard, hard as starboard. Uh, you know, I don't have the authority to give orders in that way, but I knew we were going to T-bone this boat. So fortunately, the helmsman reacted quickly and swung us over to starboard. And if he hadn't, we would have T-boned this fishing boat. So as it happened, we caught their anchor chain. They were anchored off the coast of Mexico, out of sight of land. We caught their anchor chain, swung them alongside us, and there was it was like it was like hitting a wasp nest, this flurry of activity, and all the men come up on deck speaking Spanish very rapidly. We had a woman on board, one of our um, shipmates, Helen, who spoke uh, Spanish, and she came running out saying, Están bien, están bien. And they didn't say anything. They just cut their anchor line, they got their engine going, and they took off. Sure. Um, but so these guys, these guys, you know, they when they felt uh, something hit them, they must have thought it was another fishing boat, and they come tumbling out <laughs> of their bunks to see this galleon looming over them. Uh, I, <laughs> yeah, we we laugh about that. So they must still tell that story. Um, so yeah, of course yeah. they must have expected it to be a, a fishing boat, but here was this galleon. <laughs> so they took off, and then we understood later. I'm not sure how we found this out, but supposedly in Mexico, that if you um, have a collision at sea, that the the government um, will confiscate your boat until it gets to the bottom of what happened. And so we figured they got underway, not only because they were afraid of what they're seeing, maybe it's a ghost, you know, El Draco, El Draco, <laughs> and uh, and so they got underway, and and we never knew really what happened to them. Uh, but so as it turns out. At that part of the world there, the water is very um, shallow, even though you're out of sight of land. And we had been sailing through a lot of fishing boats that had their anchor lights on. Well, this guy was anchored and didn't have a light on. So that's why we hit them. Yeah. Uh, as as far as uh, memories for me, um, you know, there, there are so many wonderful moments that stand out. We had Thanksgiving at sea where the crew turn to and all helped uh, the cook make this magnificent dinner. We had Christmas and New Year's at sea, which were just absolutely magical times. Um, so many, you know, really kind of wild, funny things happen. I remember one uh, one thing that uh, <laughs> it was very amusing. We were coming into Texas uh, after, um, you know, coming out from Panama and uh, the bow watch uh, reports something out there. Um, you know, they couldn't quite tell what it was, a ship, something. And, and we're looking through the mist and finally realized that they were the tall buildings of <laughs> Brownsville, Texas <laughs> on shore. So um, as we're, we're coming in, the, uh, uh, the captain had never been to the United States before. It was his first time over there. 
and uh, was not too familiar with it. And this is kind of interesting because there's so much discussion now uh, in the United States about uh, how appropriate Confederate um, uh, iconography is, the flags and all that. So the captain, not really knowing much about the United States, calls me over and he says, because uh, uh, you know, when a ship comes into port, you fly the flag uh, of that country that you're coming into. So he calls me over and he says, right, Bosun, we're coming into Texas. Should we be flying a Confederate flag? <laughs> and, um, you know, I'm I'm a Yankee, you're born Yankee. and raised. And to me, it's like, no, no, no. That's a, you know, so this is a very offensive symbol. That's not something that we probably, and I explained the whole history to him. He's like, oh, okay, very good. So <laughs> we're coming in. These six or seven yachts come out to greet us, and they're all flying Confederate <laughs> flags. It's like, right, post it. I thought you said we weren't supposed to fly that. <laughs> like, well, it's a little more complicated than that. <laughs> Officially. Right. But but I think ultimately the, the, the greatest memory is just that, that voyage. You know, we were 31 days uh, from San Diego to Panama, and it's very unusual nowadays to have a passage that long. You know, usually they're much shorter than that. Ships are faster. We have engines. Uh but there's something really magical about being underway nonstop and getting into that watch routine, you know, watch on, two watches off. Um, it's just, it's wonderful. And you, the, your entire world closes down to the ship. And I really, I would find myself every couple of days looking out, realizing, oh, there's nothing but water around us, you know, because your whole world is closed down to that ship. And it really, it's a very magical thing. And it's not something you get an opportunity to experience very often anymore. Mm. Wow. I mean, they're such amazing stories. I particularly like the idea of a, you know, a Spanish speaking ship being surprised <laughs> by the golden hind in the middle of the night in the late yes. 20th century. There's a, there's they a must still point. tell those stories. It, it'd, been a, it'd been a long time since Spaniards were surprised by Francis Drake. And <laughs> there <it> was. <laughs> Um, and, and with you know such incredible experiences, it must have had a real impact on the rest of your lives and your careers. Um, well, truly, I mean, yeah. it, it was it was how we met. So certainly, it's it's been the anchor in what was to become our relationship and then our marriage. And for me, um, it, it was definitely a turning point uh, in. Career-wise, uh, I had been very focused on uh, a career in the film industry, and uh, when I ran away on the Golden Hind, my thought was, okay, I'm going to be gone for six months and sort of get this out of my system and come back and resume my career in Hollywood, and I ended up being gone for a year, came back to Los Angeles, sold everything, moved on to the next sailing ship. Lisa and I were together up in Washington State. I was working on a ship there, and then Lisa ran off to the South Pacific to work on a ship, and then I worked on another ship. So it really, this was all from the Golden Hind, and realizing, you know, sort of both of us understanding what our real passion was, uh, both for sailing ships and for each other. And and for me, it ultimately led after a career in traditional sail, realizing that it'd be a lot easier to write about this stuff than actually do it. So I became a, a, an author and uh, writing almost entirely maritime related things. So I would say absolutely the our experience on the Golden Hind was a watershed moment in our lives in, in many, many ways. It completely changed the trajectory 
uh, of our lives. And I would say for the better. Yes. And for me too, initially, uh, sailing on the Golden Hind uh, made me realize that I wanted to sail professionally and not just sailing ships. I wanted to sail merchant. Um, so the, um, the first captain whose name I can't remember, uh, was very good about training me to operate the sea surveyor, uh, you, you know, the, the power vessel that was our mothership, uh, with an eye towards me entering the merchant Marine and getting my Z card. Uh, so when I left the golden hind, that was still kind of percolating. I ended up sailing professionally again. Um, my next ship was Edna and we went into the South Pacific, uh, but then my life took a, a different tack and I went back to the teaching portion of the program. So that experience that I had giving tours on the Golden Hind actually uh, gave birth to my my desire to become a teacher and to come ashore. It was just clear to me that being a woman uh, as a professional uh, merchant mariner uh, would just be a hard life. And um, I really desired to go back to school and get my degree and become a teacher. So the sailing background um, was there, but also the teaching came from the Golden Hind. And I'm a school teacher today, I would say, because of the Golden Hind and mm -hmm. still an avid sailor. We still have a sailboat. It's in the yard right now. It didn't get put in, but we still continue to sail. <laughs> <laughs> and I hear you're both involved with another traditional ship project in Maine at the moment. That's right. Yeah, we're uh, we're both involved with a project called Maine's First Ship. Uh, to give a little bit of background, um, in 1607, the colony of Jamestown was established. At the same time, another British company established a colony here on the coast of Maine. Uh, and one of the things they did was they built a ship. It was the first English-built vessel in the New World. It's called the Virginia. We're building a replica of it, uh, and it's it's it, it's it's such a wonderful opportunity uh, to maintain the skills that I, I built both on the Hind and working on other traditional sailing ships. I'm the lead rigger on the project, um, which is is a lot of fun in and of itself. But one of the great things about it is that. The ship being from 1607 is essentially the same time period as the Golden Hind. So a lot of the techniques, a lot of the rigging that we're doing is very much like the Golden Hind. And I'd also had the opportunity a few years ago to work as a rigger on replicas of the ships at Jamestown, which is also 1607. So I've got uh, a surprising amount of <laughs> early 17th, late 16th century rigging experience, which is which is unusual. But um, but now that's what we're doing. It's uh, Maine's first ship. You can find it online. Mm -hmm. Right, and and so we'll also be um, involved in education, uh, both of the public and of school children. Of course, due to the pandemic, where we won't be receiving children uh, literally, but uh, we'll have an online presence. And uh, we were going to launch her this year, but of course, again, due to the pandemic, that's been put off. But uh, we're also involved with um, sewing uh, traditional garb. Uh, eventually, the ship will be launched, God willing, and uh, we'll be sailing the coast of Maine and perhaps beyond. And the sailors will need to uh, be in authentic clothes. So uh, last January, we started having sewing bees, uh, sewing and knitting these historical uh, garments that the sailors will be wearing. There, there's, I got to say, too, there, there is uh, a lot about the education program on the Golden Hind that worked very well. Um, and we're really looking to a lot of that as a model for what we're doing. Uh, like Lisa was saying about the, the costumes that we're working on. And, you know, the, the Hind has such a wonderful inventory of traditional clothing 
that they were able to issue out to the crew. And we we're trying to replicate that and the kind of school tours that they did and that sort of thing. Um, so we're definitely looking to a lot of what we did on the hind as a model and, and also hoping to go beyond that. The hind wasn't uh, certified to take passengers out um, and we will be. So we'll be able to actually do school programs underway, uh, which yeah. we were not able to do on the hind. I mean, that all sounds incredibly exciting. And, you know, it's nice to pick up these transferable skills like 16th and 17th century rigging. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> and it's nice to actually find a need for them. That's, the pro- <laughs> That's my problem is that everything I know how to do hasn't been needed for 300 years. <laughs> it sounds like an absolutely brilliant project and I can't wait to, to follow it into the future. Um, and Jim, you've got you've just had a new book published. Is that right? In May this year? That's correct. Yeah, I um I've been working on a series uh uh set during the Viking era. Uh I have a group of Vikings who come over to Ireland originally and then the series follows them through their adventures in Ireland and they're actually over in England right now. Uh they're sailing in the Solent. They don't know it's the Solent, but uh, <laughs> the reader does if he looks at the map. Um so yeah, I just had the number uh, uh, ten uh, of that series published, and I'm starting in on a new series. I'll continue with the Viking books, but I'm starting a new series as well that will focus on the buccaneers of the Caribbean in the mid 1600s. So I'm uh, uh, back into uh, you know the days of the spritsail and uh, the Golden Hind era sailing vessels and the English and the Spanish all fighting each other. <laughs> so it's nice, nice to get back into that territory. And, and the Golden Hind is part of uh, a sort of a tapestry of living history museums and reenactments and heritage centres, much like the ship you're currently working on in Maine. Uh, why do you think that we like to recreate the past? I think part of it is, is it's fun. Uh, the, the past is fascinating, you know, and there are so many people who have had a love of history killed by boring professors and history teachers who make them recite dates and the names of battles and famous men. Mm. But, you know, when you start getting into the real nuts and bolts of history, the way people lived, the way they dressed, what they did, it's mm. fascinating. And in things like living history, like the hind or Maine's first ship really sort of bring that to life and bring the part of history that people love so much. I think that that really is is why why we do this. Well, I think it's also entertaining. So uh, there's a degree of theater about it. If you go to Plymouth Plantation in Massachusetts, the people there portraying history uh, speak in first person and you can't get them out of character. Hmm. So in some ways it's um it, well it's entertaining and you, not only are you learning but you're being entertained also uh but personally i think that we recreate history uh to answer some big questions and one of those is are the people from the past the same as we are today and does technology change human nature those are the questions that i like to mull on and when i recreate history it, it helps me to kind of get in the head of people uh, from history and helps me to identify more with them. Um, and as Jim said, the the stories of just the rank and file people are what is so compelling. 
how did just the everyday person live? And I think that a lot of these living history museums are really getting into that. Down in um, in Jamestown, they discovered the bones of a young woman who they are certain now uh, was um, cannibalized. Yeah, cannibalized. And that's just hit such a nerve with uh, so many people and they've recreated uh, what she looks like um, using her skull. And I just think it's it's so poignant and so compelling. And I think that draws people to history too. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, one of the education programs that we run on the Golden Hind now, we look at the Spanish Armada and try and get our students to understand why the English might have defeated the Spanish. Um, and, and part of that is getting them to drag cannons up and down <laughs> um and it, i think it makes it feel so much more real it makes it feel so much more tangible and and, and clear oh, I, I know the, i know those cannons well i yeah. can't tell you how many times i had to lash them to the side of the ship to keep them from rolling around when we were out at sea they're heavy aren't they peter <laughs> they're really heavy and they're really cumbersome and and i don't think until you've had a go you realize what it might have been like to be in a battle at that time and, and why. oh, oh absolutely yeah, yeah. It's, it's hard to imagine yeah yeah um and so i guess the question following on from that would be, in what ways do you think your experiences sailing the Golden Hind have impacted the way that you think about Francis Drake's crew and his 1577 voyage? Do you want to start with that? Well, I guess as a sailor, I just identify so much back in the day and I continue to identify as a sailor. So to me, there was there's an unbroken line. So just being at sea, not necessarily on the Golden Hind, but on any ship, just, I just feel very much one with sailors. And, um, and I'm always in awe of their courage, whether they're sailors today going to sea, which still takes courage, or if they were sailors uh, in history, certainly in history, I suppose it took even more courage, at least sure. looking back, it seems to us, it took more courage. Uh, they didn't, um, they didn't know what was under their keel. You know, we sail our boat here uh, on the coast of Maine, which is very rocky. And I thank God that we can see through our uh, technology on board what's under the keel. But uh, Drake and his men, they were sailing in waters. They, there were no charts. They had no idea. I mean, they, they could go aground any time as it got close to uh, coast. And it just took guts. And yeah. so I just have great, great um, um regard for all sailors. Yeah, no, I, I, I will second what Lisa says there. Um, you know, it's it took a certain degree of courage for us to go out on this ship, but we had charts, we had radios, we knew where we were going, we knew what was out there. That's we right. had weather prediction. We had safety equipment. We had safety <laughs> equipment. We had life rafts. Um, so yeah, for, for them to do what they did is, is just absolutely extraordinary. And in the conditions that they did it in, you know, when you think about the Golden Hind, um, you know, going around Cape Horn and what those conditions were like. I remember once uh, standing outside in the winter here in Maine, it's freezing cold. And um, I'm thinking to myself, okay, I'm really cold right now. Now imagine if I was wet as well. And imagine if I was standing on a rolling deck at night. And imagine now I had to climb aloft and stow a sail under these conditions. It's mind-boggling what these people went through. And having sailed on the hind and knowing what it's like to lay aloft and go out on the yard, you know, and never in those conditions, uh, yeah, I, we, 
just have an appreciation for what they did that, um, you know, I don't think you can get just by reading about it. Yeah. No, I mean, it, it always just boggles the mind. I think you're absolutely right to think that, that people were able to do that and, and had the courage to do that. Um, the final question I really want to ask you is broadly, what does the ship mean to you? That's such a, a big question, Peter. And I think we've perhaps um, answered a lot of that through telling our stories. But, um, you know, it's just it's what does it mean? It brought James and I together um, and it's been the constant backdrop uh, of our lives. And uh, we always uh, enjoy telling the story anew to people we meet who don't yeah. know the story. And um, it's. I feel like it's one of my greatest accomplishments and um, and showed me that I could have the courage I would need to live my life, whatever came my way. Like I've, I've faced down some pretty fierce weather at sea and I live to tell the tale. And I think back on that when I'm faced with things that seem even more ominous in my life. And um, so it's, it, it continues to be a source of strength for me in yeah. many ways. Yeah. And no, I, I quite agree with that. And I, I uh, experienced much the same thing. I have to say, Lisa confessed to having uh, gotten seasick on the ship. Something that I didn't confess to is that when I joined the Hind, I had a terrible fear of heights. Um, and the thought of going aloft was utterly terrifying to me. Uh, and the first person who brought me aloft was Lisa. Uh, she took me up into the foretop, and I literally hyperventilated three times out of terror going up there. I didn't let her know that. He hit it. I don't I know how it. I didn't see it. <laughs> but uh, it was absolutely terrifying. And then I, I managed to get to the point where I could comfortably lay aloft, even when the ship was at sea, and do what needed to be done. Never liked it, but I could do it. And that was a, certainly a source of pride. But as Lisa says, you know, the, the Golden Hind was a seminal part of our lives. It really was the thing that spun our lives off into the uh, path that it, that they ultimately took, and it's um, it's incredible, incredibly meaningful to us, and, and always will be. Just last week, we had a Zoom meeting with a bunch of our shipmates, and many of them we hadn't really talked to for over thirty years, and uh, it was as if no time had gone yeah. by. We were able just to be right back on deck and share those memories, and it was just a thrill. It's just something you you never forget. That's the shared experience that um, no one will understand who wasn't there. Yeah, yeah. And um, it was just such a thrill to meet up with them um, through the the magic of the internet. So yeah. <laughs> we were very happy to do that. Well, we certainly have given you more than any human being could possibly want. Yes, so. <laughs> please feel free to cut well, I'm and sure slice. They will. <laughs> it has been really wonderful talking to you both. Um, and I'm sure that our listeners are going to revel in all of your fantastic experiences <laughs> and stories. Um, so thank you so much for joining well, us. Thank you so much for having us. We look forward to hearing the, the end result. Thank you, Peter. That was the Golden Hind podcast. For more information, head over to our website, goldenhind.co.uk. Remember, there's a letter E on the end of Golden Hind. You'll find videos, blogs, educational resources, and of course, all the details you'll need to come and visit us. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Thanks for listening. <laughs>